Well, with this fifth lesson on the third chapter of the book of Genesis, we are going to conclude our study of the three most foundational chapters of all the Word of God, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. In addition, we are also finishing, as you know, our study for this whole year. And although it may seem like, you know, we didn't really get too far because of all of our unexpected interruptions, we actually did cover a lot of ground, if you think back over what we covered. We began with God alone, you know, before time, in the beginning, just God, when there was absolutely nothing at all in existence except his own triune person. And then we watched him create all that is. And so that right there is covering a lot of ground, isn't it? He created everything that exists. And he did this in a very orderly, logical, precise, all-wise manner in a period of one literal seven-day week. In our study of that fantastic, unparalleled creation week, we also learned why we, as Bible-believing Christians, do not have to compromise with uniformitarianism or evolutionism, or even theistic evolutionary theories, which currently dominate our contemporary culture. And we've also learned of the marvelous love and care of the Lord God that he has for man, as he personally and directly created man and formed him in his own image and likeness, and then made every possible provision for man, which included, of course, not only the entire universe— and specifically this earth, but also a beautiful utopian paradise home in the Garden of Eden. And also how God gave him all manner of animal companions and and a vast variety of delicious foods to eat, and even a perfectly suited helpmeet, a wife. So in chapter 3, we have already covered three critical topics, which explain for us why mankind and earth finds itself in the tragic condition which it is currently in, meaning that this earth is in a state of continual decay and degeneration and, of course, eventual death. We discussed what were those three critical subjects. Well, we discussed the temptation of man to begin with in verses 1 to 5, then the fall of man in verses 6 to 8, and the judgment of man in verses 9 to 14 and 16 to 19. And even in the midst, we saw this, in the midst of administering his judgment upon man for his disobedience, which is what a holy God has to do, a holy and just must do, even in the midst of that judgment, we did see the grace and the mercy of Almighty Jehovah Elohim being displayed. He had every right to just strike man dead right there on the spot for his deliberate disobedience. And yet God immediately made known to man that he would allow him to live physically at least for a while, you know, long enough to produce offspring, many offspring, in fact. And as we learned in our last lesson on the hope of man, see, we covered the temptation of man, the fall of man, the judgment of man. Last week was the hope of man. In that lesson, God even promised man an opportunity for spiritual rebirth. Not only would he not die immediately, as, you know, he could have very well done, 
But um, God also gave man an opportunity for spiritual rebirth through faith in a coming Redeemer, the seed of the woman, who would fatally crush Satan's head and thereby reverse the curse of judgment for sin. However, as of yet in our point of study of chapter 3, we have not really been able to determine if Adam and Eve were genuinely saved. Have we? We really don't know, were they saved? I've had people ask me, are Adam and Eve in heaven or are they in hell? They had fallen into sin from a state of absolute perfection and innocence. So they died spiritually the moment that they partook of that forbidden fruit. And, of course, at the moment they did that, they also began to die physically. Although, of course, it would take them some 900 years to actually uh, before they would actually die and return to the dust of the earth. Yet their weak confessions to God, you know, remember when they both tried to pass the blame for what they had done? Before the, they each very weakly did admit, uh, and I did eat. We saw that back in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Both of them finally, after passing the blame, said very meekly, and I did eat. But those weak confessions coming from Adam and Eve don't really demonstrate a whole lot of repentance, do they? Not at all. And yet the fact of the matter is that God's program of redemption for mankind was going to be fixed solely on faith in the coming Redeemer. That's always his way of salvation, faith in the Redeemer whether it's before the cross or after the cross. Salvation for all men, from the very first man, Adam, to the very last man, whoever he will be, faith or salvation is going to be based upon his or her faith in the Redeemer. Whether it would be, you know, for Old Testament saints on the other side of the cross, faith in his future coming and the fulfillment of his redemptive work, or whether it would be from our side of the cross, from our perspective, faith in his past coming and his fulfillment of all his redemptive work. So Adam and Eve, you see, could not be saved until they heard the good news of the gospel regarding this coming one, this redeemer who would crush the serpent's head and uh, also, you know, defeat sin and death on their behalf. How does faith come? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So it wasn't until God's words of Genesis 3:15, which we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel message that Adam and Eve heard for the very first time this tremendously wonderful news. And it's very interesting to me as I got to thinking about it that the, the first time the gospel message was ever spoken, it was spoken by whom? God himself. And to whom was it spoken? Mm, think about it. Look at Genesis 3.15 again. Who was it spoken to? Satan. That's rather interesting. The first time the gospel was ever preached, was it was preached by God directly to Satan. But, of course, it would do Satan no good because he's unredeemable. But, of course, we really know that, as many of you said, it was really spoken for the benefit 
of Adam and Eve, even though it was spoken directly to Satan, it was for Adam and Eve's benefit. And as we learned several lessons ago, it was given to them before God then went on to announce his curse upon them, the judgments upon them, which we find in verses 16 to 19. So what did he do? He gave them the good news first. It's always easier to take bad news when we have first had the good news, you know, especially when it's first hearing good news that tells us no matter what might happen to us, all is going to be all right in the end. And that is the truth that we have in the gospel message if we willingly place our faith in the Redeemer of the gospel message. Because doesn't the good news tell us that no matter if you believe in this coming Redeemer, well, who's already come from where we are, that if you put your faith in him, no matter what might happen, no matter what the bad news might be in this life, ultimately everything will be all right. Ultimately, in eternity, everything will pan out and will be wonderful, way beyond our imaginations. All things will work together for good to them that love God, to them who are are the called. So as we look now at the closing verses of Genesis chapter 3, which will be verses 20 to 24, we are going to see if Adam and his wife, after they heard the gospel if they now demonstrate true saving faith. Are they in heaven or are they in hell? Did they believe God's word regarding the coming Redeemer who would be bruised by Satan, the one who would victoriously crush Satan's head in the process and redeem lost men from their bondage to sin and death? Will they believe this? Did they believe it? And actually, if you want to go ahead and kind of skim over those verses, see if you can find out if they believed. And that's exactly what we're going to find out in this lesson, which I told you we have entitled The Deliverance of Man. And right there in that title, (laughs) it sort of gives you a clue as to the answer to that question, did they believe? Because we're titling it The Deliverance of Man. We've only got three parts to our outline, so even though you can't see the outline up here, they're very easy to remember. In verse 20, we're going to look at a new name. In verse 21, we're going to learn about some new clothing. And then in verses 22 to 24, we're going to learn why God had to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden and have them make themselves a new home somewhere else. So we're going to look at a new name, some new clothing and a new home. Okay? Pretty simple. Let's begin by looking at a new name in Genesis 3.20, where the scripture says, now this is after hearing the curse, you know, all through um, uh, the previous verses, and the gospel message back in verse 15, and then they went on to hear about the curse, you know, how woman would sorrow in giving birth, and how she'd have to... uh, be submissive essentially to her husband and then Adam had learned how he's going to have to toil and labor in order to make the ground bring forth food for he and his family and that how he would then return to the dust of the earth that they would eventually die and now in verse 20 we read and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living that's the clue all right this is the verse which tells us whether they believed or not the the gospel message 
Now, although we have been referring to the first woman to ever be created by God, we've been referring to her throughout our study as Eve. <laughs> Yet the fact of the matter is that until Genesis 3.20, the verse I just read to you, she is not named. She has not yet been named. Of course, we all knew her name ahead of time. But in the scripture, she hasn't been called Eve to this point. She's been called female, she's been called helpmeet, and she's been called wife and woman. But only after the fall and after hearing God's words of Genesis 3.15 and the judgment which followed in verses 16 to 19, did Eve receive her name. And who gave her that name? Adam is the one who named her, not God. The name came from Adam. The name which Adam gave to his wife is very, very significant. Did you ever know that? If you didn't, you're going to learn something this morning. Because this name gives us great insight into Adam's mind and heart. The name Eve in Hebrew is Chava. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not. It's C-H-A-V-V-A-H. And it means literally to live or to give life or to spring forth life. Adam named his wife Eve because she was to be, as we read in the end of, at the end of this verse, she was going to be the mother of who? All living. Notice that, the mother of all living. When Adam named Eve, he was totally acting in faith. He was demonstrating faith in the Word of God. He was trusting God's promise of Genesis 3.15 that Eve would bear seed which would be at enmity with Satan's seed and that she would bring forth in particular one seed who would crush Satan's head. And he was also trusting God's promise of verse 16 that his wife would bring forth children. That's what it says in that verse. Although, of course, in doing so, she would suffer a lot and have a lot of sorrow. So by calling his wife Eve, Adam was indicating his faith in God's promise that not only would they together have children, but that through reproduction, God would send a special seed, the coming Redeemer, who would bring them salvation. Now we have to remember that at this point in time, Adam and Eve had no children. As far as we know, it doesn't even appear that they had ever had intimate physical union. I mean, we don't know, but as far as the scripture is concerned, we're not told that Adam knew Eve until chapter 4, verse 1. And at this point in time, neither one of them had ever seen a child, had they? They'd never seen a child. They had never known what pregnancy is, much less actual birth. So by naming his wife Eve, which means essentially life, Adam was demonstrating his acceptance and his belief in God's word. Not only would they together, Adam and Eve, produce life, offspring, which of course meant that they would not immediately lose their physical lives in death, but also one day through Eve's seed, 
they would also receive back the spiritual life which they had lost. Although Adam had just heard, you know, in the previous verse, look at verse 19. What did he heard? What was the last thing he heard before he named Eve? Right. He had just, just heard that he and all men after him would return to the dust of the earth from which he came. He had just heard that he would die. Yet, in the very next verse, he does not name his wife a name which would mean mother of all dying, does he? I mean, that would have made sense. He just heard he was going to die. And so very, it would have been very easy for him to name her a name which meant mother of all dying. But we find that he believed God's promise of eventual redemption and therefore in very pure and simple faith, not, of course, understanding everything that was involved, he named his wife Eve. Why? Look at the verse 20. He named her Eve because she was the mother of all living. This new name then demonstrates to us that Adam had true faith in God's word, true faith in the coming Redeemer. And we'll talk about Eve in a minute, okay? Now we know Adam had true faith. What about Eve? Just hold on. Before we look at the new clothing for Adam and Eve, we need to, I just want to mention real quickly the significance, another significance of the statement where it says that Eve was the mother of all living. Think about that statement for a second. She's the mother of all living. This is a statement made by the divinely inspired hand of Moses. You know, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired of God. So, what does this mean? Eve is the mother of all living. This clearly refutes the evolutionary teaching that there were pre-Adamite men living at any time. Or that... Um, that there were men, other hominid kinds of creatures, living contemporary at the same time as Adam, which some also say. If, um, if Eve is the mother of all living human beings, then could there be pre-Adamite men and women? Could there be cavemen before Adam and Eve came on the scene? I mean, you know, those, those theories which try to compromise with evolution and the Bible, you know, try to blend the two together, have a real problem here because they have to absolutely say the scripture doesn't mean what it says if Eve is the mother of all living. So I just wanted to point that out to you. It's just another proof that you either have to take the word of God or you have to go with evolution, but please don't tell me you're going to try to blend the two of them together. It just doesn't work. All right, let's look at the new clothing, and here we're going to find out about Eve and her salvation. Verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. In this verse, we are again seeing the grace of God being manifested toward Adam and Eve. In his response to their faith, in his word, God provided them graciously with coverings for their nakedness. Their nakedness, you know, we discussed this, was not only literal nakedness, but it also represented what? Um, spiritual, yeah, it represented their guilt and their shame for sin. Now, based on the fact that following verse 20, it does tell us here that God clothed both Adam 
and Eve with the skins of a sacrificial animal, we can assume several things. First of all, we can assume that Eve also believed God, you know, God's word, God's promise about the coming Redeemer. She did not dispute Adam's name for her, did she? She didn't say something like, oh no, Adam, you can't call me mother of all living. You have to call me mother of all dying. She didn't dispute what he named her. And her silence, you see, speaks of her agreement with the name choice. She finally has learned how to be submissive to her husband. She didn't argue about the name. And secondly, so we can assume that she agreed with Adam. And she also believed God's promise about the coming Redeemer. And secondly, we can assume here that both Adam and Eve repented, truly repented, of their sin. Since true faith always, always has to involve repentance, which is a turning away from sin and a turning to God, we can very safely assume that both Adam and Eve had a change of attitude about their sin. They had a change of attitude towards Satan, and they had a change of attitude toward themselves as well. Now they were truly, truly sorry for what they had done and for how they had hurt God, and also for how they had hurt the entire earth and all the animal creatures and all their future children, of course, as well as themselves. So they placed themselves willingly on God's mercy rather than uh, running to Satan. You know, they could have, after hearing the curse on them, <clears throat> they could have run to Satan to team up with him in his rebellion against God. But did they do that? No, they didn't. So we assume, <clears throat> based on all these things, that both of them were genuinely saved. If they did not both have this kind of faith, this kind of true faith, genuine faith, and true repentance, which accompanies true faith, um, then God would not have covered them with new clothing as he did. So that's the other assumption, too. And the fact that he covered them, we know also that they were genuinely saved. Now, in the Edenic Paradise Garden... Blood was then shed for the first time because you can't get animal skins without killing the animal, without shedding blood. The impact of this <clears throat> on Adam and Eve, you know, you can just picture them standing there watching God in the person of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ select, he would have to select and then slaughter one or two, we don't know which, of their animal companions... That impact on Adam and Eve must have absolutely been tremendous because they had never seen this before. They'd never seen blood. They'd never seen death before. Now, an educated guess, and this would be my guess, would be that the animal which was slain, either one or two, would have been a sheep since this would be the most appropriate symbolic picture of the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God the true Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I had to make a guess as to w what kind of animal the Lord slaughtered in order to cover Adam and Eve with skins, I would say that it was sheep. Adam and Eve would have learned then the hard way that sin causes the most awful, horrible consequences. Sin not only brought about their own decay process in their own bodies and, of course, eventual death, with the same results then on the whole earth, 
that the whole earth would uh, be in this process of decay, actually the whole universe, but it also brought about the death of a perfectly innocent animal or two. Adam and Eve, if you can picture the scene, must have, must have just stood there in absolute silence and horror and sorrow and shock because they had never, ever seen blood before, much less the pain and the finality of death. You know, he not only probably slit the throats of those sheep, if that's what they were, but also then would skin them in front of Adam and Eve. So this was a very graphic way for them to learn what both sin and death really mean and how horrible both of them really are. They knew that they were condemned to die because they had heard God say that, you know, when he had given the warning about eating the forbidden fruit, that if they ate, they would surely die. So they knew they were condemned to die, although he was giving them this period of grace where they wouldn't die immediately. <clears throat> and by the death of um, the animal, they would realize now the seriousness and the reality of their judgment, that one day they too would be like that animal. They'd be dead. And, you know, you could see the finality of death there. Likewise, every death which they would ever witness during their long lives would then remind them over and over again of their own coming appointment with the grave. And this scene then, you see, would serve the purpose, God's purpose, of causing them to cling even more strongly to God's promise of this coming Savior this coming seed of the woman, this coming redeemer, who would, you know, eventually give them back life. Not only resurrected life, but their spiritual life too. So it, this whole scene would cause them to trust even more fully on God for life after death. And isn't that what death does with us? I mean, if there was no death, why, we wouldn't even cling to God at all. We wouldn't worry about anything. But death makes us really put our hope and trust in him for life after death. So watching God kill an animal or two would also teach Adam and Eve more than of not only all that I told you about, but also more of God's mercy, what his mercy is all about, and how dependent, how absolutely dependent they were upon his mercy. God could have been doing to them what he was doing to the animal, couldn't he? He had every right to do so. He had warned them of the consequences of disobedience, but they had disobeyed anyway. And so he had every right to kill them. But in his mercy, he shed the blood of another in their place. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But, aren't you glad for that? B-U-T. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. This whole scene then, of course, you know this, I'm sure, points to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, who is the righteousness which must cover anyone, everyone who desires to be acceptable to God. There's only one way, only one way an individual can have his own guilt and shame of sin covered. And that way is to be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, although sinless, just like that poor little sheep, became sin for us so that in him we might be made 
the righteousness of God. The innocent Lamb of God, capital L, the Lord Jesus, willingly shed his blood and died in order to take away the sins of all those who would accept his payment on their behalf. Adam and Eve then were learning in prophetic type that a covering or atonement, what does the word atonement mean? It just means a sin covering, okay? They were learning in type that a, a covering or an atonement could only be provided by God himself. He's the one who killed the animal. He's the only one who could provide the clo- co- uh, covering. And they were also learning that it had to be by way of the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness for sin. It also says in Leviticus 17:11, for the life of the flesh is where? In the blood. And I, God, have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. You know, those churches which uh, desire to take the blood out of their hymn books and the blood out of their services are gravely making a serious mistake because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. They're taking away the forgiveness from their flock. It's the blood, the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which covers our sin. So we should sing, washed in the blood, (laughs) at the end of this service. I shouldn't take the blood out. That blood is the heart of the gospel message. Now, although the Lord Jesus would not come to earth and actually shed his blood and die to pay for the wages of sin for some 4,000 years, yet Adam and Eve and all other Old Testament people who looked forward in faith to the Redeemer's eventual coming, they were temporarily covered. Their sins were temporarily covered, you see, until Christ actually got here and covered them with his shed blood. They were temporarily covered by what? The, by bloody animal sacrifices. All those animals that were slaughtered were just covered, temporary coverings, until the, the Lamb of God would once for all cover them and take away their sins. God could forgive Adam and Eve and all other Old Testament saints because from his perspective in heaven, the sinless sacrifice of his son was already a fact. You know, he knows the end from the beginning. I say that all the time, but he does. So uh, from God's perspective, he knew without a shadow of a doubt that that his son would be crucified, he would die, and he would shed his blood. All that would take place, and all sinners who place their faith in this coming Redeemer would have their sins permanently covered and paid for. So he could forgive Adam and Eve, and he could forgive all Old Testament saints to the time of the cross because he knew that his son would die. It was a sure fact. And so he knew that he could forgive them. Um, And also it does tell us in the scripture that the Lamb of God was slain from when? From the foundation of the world. And that's from God's perspective. He knew that this would happen. Now, we don't know for sure, but God may have also verbally 
explained to Adam and Eve what he was doing. We don't know this because it isn't in the scripture, so this is just speculation, but perhaps he did also explain it to them with words. Since they were the parents of the entire human race, God would have wanted them to very clearly understand what he wanted all future humanity to know. And one of the greatest lessons that he would want them to know is how he could be approached, you know, by sinners, which was through the blood sacrifice of an innocent animal. All of this was a picture of a substitute. And it was, of course, also a picture, as we said, of the, the, the one coming substitute with a big S, capital S, the woman's seed with a capital S who would, of course, crush Satan and his evil works forever. It says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Silver and gold can save nobody, can it? But how were we redeemed? How are we redeemed? But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot. So perhaps... God may have explained verbally, I don't know, but he may have to Adam what he was doing while he was killing the animals and covering Adam and Eve with the animal skins. You know, man's own flimsy effort at clothing himself, you know, at trying to cover his shame and guilt of sin will never, ever bring him righteousness. Those fig leaf aprons of Adam and Eve had already demonstrated their inadequacy. Inadequacy. I can imagine by this time they were already um, shriveling up. You know how leaves do. <laughs> and they weren't really probably covering much of anything. But they'd already showed how inadequate they were because even after they were put on, what did Adam and Eve do? Look at verse um, 7 or 8 back in chapter 3. Even after they put those fig leaf aprons on, still they hid from God, didn't they? So, you know, they did no good. And, all, and they also even acknowledged their nakedness before him. In verse 10, Adam's, you know, when he was answering God, where art thou? He said, well, I knew I was naked, so I hid. And yet he had an apron of fig leaves on. So it did, they did absolutely no good. <clears throat> No, no one can ever be acceptable by their own works, by their own fig leaf works, can they? <clears throat> Those aprons of their own making had to be removed, and they had to be replaced by God himself with acceptable garments, which he himself provided. <clears throat> this is a different lesson, isn't it? <laughs> now I know what pastors go through. <laughs> <laughs> it says in Isaiah 61:10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. There's nothing we can ever put on ourselves with our own efforts to make ourselves acceptable to God. He is the one who has to cover us, clothe us. He provides the clothing, the covering, which, of course, <clears throat> is the robe of righteousness which we receive from Christ. So God was teaching Adam and Eve, by way of his action of killing innocent animals to uh, cover their nakedness, that they were to approach him, to approach God through sacrifice, through the shedding of blood of an animal sacrifice, an innocent animal. <clears throat> 
And Adam and Eve then were to teach that truth to their children, which they did. Um, as we know from what they do in chapter 4, how they go to the altar and, you know, and they obviously had been doing that while their children were growing up and Abel knew exactly what to do. So they were to pass this truth on along to their children. Now, of course, as we also learn as we begin reading chapter 4 of Genesis, not all of their offspring would be obedient to this teaching. Their firstborn child, in fact, Cain, disregarded their teaching altogether when he was, I guess, of age to do so. He disregarded that teaching because he did not offer the Lord a blood sacrifice, but rather he attempted to approach God through the results of his own efforts, of his own labor, didn't he? That was the wrong way. There's only one way to approach God and to be accepted by him, and that way is through a substitute blood sacrifice. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for man's sins. He died as our sin substitute, didn't he? He died in our place. The Lord took our sins on his person and he bore the eternal punishment and the penalty of our sins. He actually literally became sin for us. And when we did our Life of Christ study and talked about the crucifixion, we got into all that that means when he became sin for us. He willingly sacrificed his own sinless life and his precious blood for us. Therefore, by placing our faith in him, we are able to stand before a holy God with our sins covered. They are washed by the blood of the Lamb. We are covered with his robe of righteousness. And therefore, as we stand before God, he sees us without sin and perfectly righteous. We are counted as righteous, only because Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman, took our sins off of us and he placed them on himself. He bore our judgment. And all we have to do is so simple on our half, on our side of the picture. All we have to do is accept in faith his payment. I mean, it's so simple. Just freely take it. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. We're a you, you know, we're all peculiar. <laughs> you already knew that, didn't you? <laughs> we are a peculiar people. To the world, the world looks at us and they, they do think we're peculiar. And, I, I, and we are, but um, I'm glad we are. So God had created man so as to bless him beyond measure. He had provided man with absolutely everything that man could have ever dreamed of having. And yet man had turned from God by way of his own deliberate disobedience. However, in spite of man's sin, God was not going to let his purpose for man be defeated. What is the chief purpose for man? What is the chief purpose of man? Right, you all know that. It's to glorify God. Church, chief purpose of man is to glorify God. God's purposes, because he is sovereign God, can never be defeated. His purpose for man was that man might glorify him. Since he's God, his purpose would never be defeated. So although his holiness demanded that he judge man, he did have to judge man, yet God also put his purposes for man 
back on track. He worked out a way, which actually he had planned from before the foundation of the earth. He worked out a way for man to still be able to receive the clothing of righteousness and eternal life so that he would still fulfill his purpose and bring glory to his creator. We've already learned how God intended to redeem man, which of course is through the Lord Jesus Christ, but God now still had one more situation that he needed to handle. There still remained one more thing for him to do. God had to deliver man from the potential risk of living forever as a sinner in a fallen world. So what did he have to do? He had to expel Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden lest they eat from the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in their fallen condition. Okay, so let's look at a new home, Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. In verse 22, we again have insight into a council session of the triune Godhead, just like we had back in Genesis 1.26. Remember when the Godhead discussed making man and creating man in their own image. Now, it's impossible here for God to have been communicating with the angels because he would never have put angels on an even level with himself. And he says here, the man has become as one of us. He wouldn't put angels on an even level with himself. And so likewise, it's impossible for him to have been speaking to man. He was not speaking to Adam or Eve because man is, not, is neither also on an even level with God. Furthermore, man is the one here about whom God is talking. He's not the one God is talking to. So who else could God be talking to if he wasn't talking to the angels or to God, to man? Right. He, yes, he was communicating within his own triune person. He was communicating with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The counsel of God here that we see was with regard to man and man's current situation on earth. Man had become now like the members of the Trinity in that he now knew good and evil. Adam and Eve, you know, in their pre-fall state of innocence had no idea at all about the existence of evil or of Satan or of sin or of death. However, now things had totally changed and like God himself, they knew the reality of evil. And yet, unlike God, they uh, did not know, I mean, they, do, they did know evil experientially. Does God know evil experientially? No, because he as God has never personally experienced evil. He cannot sin. And he cannot even have an evil thought. But Adam and Eve had experienced evil firsthand. 
They were now sinful, fallen creatures. And they would, from this point on, deal with evil thoughts and evil actions and evil cons- the consequences of evil on a daily basis. So God had to deliver man from living forever as a sinner in a fallen world. God knew, you see, that if he left Adam and Eve in the garden then they could still eat of that tree of life. And if they did, what would happen? They would live forever in these flesh bodies. And that would not be a good thing. It would not be a good thing at all. It would be an awful and tragic thing, not only for man, but also for God. Why would it be tragic? Well, For Adam and Eve, it would be tragic because it would mean that they would have to live eternally in their own sinful, corrupt flesh, and they would have to live eternally on a cursed earth. Man would live under the curse of being judged and condemned and punished forever and ever. For God, it would be terrible because his plan to redeem both man and earth from their corruption would never occur because man would have to live forever in corruption. Man would become an indestructible, fallen creature, just like who else? All the fallen angels. They're unredeemable. Do you know that? They're indestructible, fallen creatures. They will live forever in a sinful state, in eternal punishment. And man would have become like them if he ate of the tree of life. So the Lord God had to banish Adam and Eve from the garden. So this banishment was an act of mercy. Really, it was. It was an act of mercy. It's interesting that the scripture tells us that God actually had to drive them out. You notice that? Um, And this indicates that the couple was very reluctant to leave. The garden, you know, was a paradise on earth. It was, in fact, a picture of what the new earth is going to be like in the eternal state. Within that utopian paradise, man had absolutely everything. He had security. He had companionship with the animals. He had plenty of food. He had love, joy, fellowship, uh, fulfillment, perfection. And most of all, what did he have in the garden? Right, fellowship with God. That is where man met with God. Most likely this couple did not want to leave the garden because they knew they were now being separated from God. Their fellowship with him in their new home out in the world would not be as it had been in the garden where they were able to meet with God face to face on a daily basis. Their sin had separated them from him. Furthermore, they had experienced absolute environmental utopia in the garden. But now they would have to go out into a sin-cursed earth where they had been told that they would encounter much sorrow. And they weren't exactly looking forward to this. So they had to be driven out. Um, So God had to drive them out. Now, God's great love and mercy are seen over and over again in what he did for man after man had sinned. In perfect justice, God had every right to send both Adam and Eve straight to their graves. But in love and mercy, he gave them a second chance. Also, in perfect justice, he could have driven them straight to hell. But instead, in mercy, he just drove them out of the garden. 
injustice. He could have just left them to live forever as fallen creatures in a fallen world. But in his infinite mercy and grace, he provided a Savior who would save and restore them to perfection. We have a very merciful God. I mean, we don't deserve any of this mercy, but he is so good to us. I hope you see that. And then as one further stroke of his love and mercy, the Lord God placed angelic guards or cherubims at the east of the garden. That must have been, you know, the entrance to the garden. And their task was to prevent Adam and Eve and all their descendants for as long as the garden was going to remain on earth. We don't know how long it remained on earth. Perhaps it perished at the time of the flood. We just really don't know. But the, the angel's task was to prevent them from ever attempting to re-enter their former home and possibly do what they had done before. And what was that? Eat from the forbidden fruit. And that's maybe what would have happened. This time, however, the forbidden fruit was on the tree of life not on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam would have to learn that his utopia would never, ever again be found in this world, but only where? With God in heaven. Even during the coming millennial kingdom, you know, the literal kingdom here on this earth, even in that kingdom, the earth is going to be full of sinners. Some saved by grace and glorified, some saved by grace and still in fallen bodies, and others who will be born during that kingdom will not even be saved at all. So it still won't be utopia, even during the millennial kingdom. So Adam's new hope was to be in the promised seed of the woman. It was in the coming Redeemer that Adam was to trust for his daily provisions and for his strength and his security and his love and his joy and his peace and his fellowship. You know, not in a utopia, in a utopian environment. Now all that was to be found in Christ, in the coming Redeemer. And even though Adam could not meet with God face to face as he had in the garden, yet God would always be there with Adam because he would never leave him nor forsake him. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we know if he says he'll never leave nor forsake us, we know he never left nor forsook Adam and Eve. It was all this that Adam and Eve would have to learn while living in a sin-cursed world outside of the garden. As a sinful creature, Adam could no longer live in a perfect environment. He and all of his descendants would have to learn the true nature and the true effects of sin. Men would have to learn what it means to live out of fellowship with God so that they would then long and desire for the one who could alone bring them back into fellowship with God. Now it's interesting to note that cherubim are always, always associated in the scripture with the throne of God. In Ezekiel 1, verses 25 to 28, and also in Revelation 4, 5, they surround God's throne in heaven. And at least some of them spend all of their time and all of their energy praising God. Day and night, they're worshiping God. And then they're not only associated always with the throne of God, but they're associated with God's judgment upon man, which is exactly what we see here in Genesis 3.24. But they're also associated with God's mercy. Actually, as I've already mentioned, it is God's mercy here, which expelled man from the Garden of Eden and placed this cherubim guard at the entrance. 
Now, what's also interesting to think about is that later, later on in the scripture and in history, when God's presence was represented, you know, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, and specifically where was God's presence represented? Represented? Right over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that mercy seat was covered by the touching wings of two golden representations of cherubim. And it was there, of course, on the mercy seat that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would enter uh, with the sacrificial blood of atonement to sprinkle over the mercy seat. Now, similarly, here, on either side of the east entrance of the garden were two cherubim, well, we assume two, one on each side, standing before the place where God had met with man, which is always in the scripture somehow or another mysterious, re, mysteriously related to the tree of life. Wherever you see a tree, the tree of life in scripture, it's always related to where God meets with man. So we have a picture there of, of what eventually would be another picture in the, um, in the tabernacle and then later on also in the, te- in the temple. And then the, it talks about this flaming sword which turned every way. That's strange, isn't it? Just a sword, a flaming sword turning, revolving around. This flaming, spinning sword whizzing around the cherubim is a symbol of God's wrath against sin. The way to the tree of life would only again be opened when the Lord Jesus Christ had the sword of God's wrath against sin placed into his own side. And when that sword against God's, of God's wrath against sin was pierced into his side, what happened? It caused that, that blood that covers us. That's the, that's the shed blood was when he was pierced in the side. That's the precious blood that made remission for our sins. Those covered by his blood will have access, you see, to the tree of life and to God himself and to the lamb throughout all of eternity. So we have a beautiful picture here. Now, in closing, what I'd like to do very briefly is give you a comparative study between two very significant trees. Okay, so listen to this because it's very good. It's very interesting. Two significant trees in the scripture. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and another tree, a tree upon which the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, suffered and died. What, what do we call that tree? The cross. So by way of contrast, we're going to look at six significant things, uh, differences between these two trees. Number one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, according to Genesis 2.9, was planted by God himself, right? It says, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the other hand, the tree which was used to make the cross upon which Christ hung was planted into the ground by men, meaning that men cut the tree and actually formed, you know, the cross. They made an upright vertical beam, and then they also made a cross beam, 
and they formed it into the cross. And then when Christ was on it, what did they do? They actually planted it into the ground. They set it into that hole in the ground where it would stand before all who could then gaze upon its occupant. Secondly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, according to Genesis 3, 6, was pleasant to look upon. It was pleasant to the eyes. You know, that's what appealed to Eve, is she saw that it was good. It was pleasant to the eyes. And this stands in stark contrast to the tree of the old rugged cross, which was a hideous and a repugnant thing to look on. The penalty of crucifixion was perhaps probably one of the most horrible methods of torture and death which has ever, ever been devised by man. When we think about the mocking crowds, about the taunting, hateful religious rulers, about the callous Roman soldiers while they're gambling for Christ's robe, about all the dusty, indifferent travelers as they pass, you know, back and forth, in front of the scene where Christ hung on the cross, totally indifferent to what was going on as they, as they were going back and forth to Jerusalem on the very busy Passover day. And then when we think also about the bloody, beaten Lord Jesus, you could hardly tell was even a man as he hung there beside two common thieves. That whole picture, we have to agree, was not a very pleasant sight to look upon at all in contrast to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was pleasant to the eyes. Third, the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was forbidden fruit, wasn't it? Forbidden to eat. God forbade man to eat of that tree. And we read about that in Genesis 2.17. It was the one restriction God put upon man. In contrast, however, there is no restriction whatsoever placed on the second tree. In fact, all men are invited to freely draw near and partake of the fruit of the cross. All sinners are invited by God himself to taste and see that the Lord is good. So just as man was commanded not to eat of the first tree, man is commanded to eat of the second tree. Fourth. Due to God's commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan attempted to get man to do just the opposite, to eat that forbidden fruit. However, because God now openly invites whosoever will to partake of the second tree, the cross, Satan uses all powers at his disposal to try to prevent men from even coming near the cross, much less of partaking of it. Just as Satan was behind the scenes, you see, causing men to eat the wrong fruit, he is likewise behind the scenes manipulating situations so as to keep sinners from eating the right fruit. That's just his way. Always does the opposite of what God wants. Fifth, when man partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it brought what? Sin and death to himself and to his whole world because it brought the curse of God upon all. However, by eating of the second tree, the cross, one receives life and salvation. 
The Lord Jesus himself said this. And of course, this is spiritually speaking. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That means partake of him, you know, not eating literally, okay? And he said, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. We have to internalize Christ. We have to, you know, make him uh, real in our lives. We have to invite him to come into our hearts. And that's what he's talking about. So by eating from one tree, man lost his spiritual life and he was cursed by eating the fruit of the second tree upon which hung the one who became a curse for us. Man receives spiritual life and even eternal life. Sixth, and this one's really interesting when you think about this one. There were two thieves in the first garden, Adam and Eve, took and ate that which was not to be taken and eaten. So they were expelled from paradise. There were also two thieves in the second garden where Christ hung on the cross. You say a garden? Yes. It says in John 19:41, now in the place where Christ was crucified there was a garden. In the second garden, there were also two thieves. Yet one of those thieves partook of the fruit of the second tree, the cross. And he was admitted into paradise, wasn't he? And it's interesting to note that the only time the Lord Jesus Christ ever used the word paradise was this one time. When he did so upon the cross, when he spoke to that believing thief, when he said, Today thou shalt be with me, where? In paradise. So it would seem that the Lord purposely used that word in order to take our minds back to that original paradise in Eden, where another thief, the first Adam, took of one tree and was thereby the root cause for the second Adam's death on another tree. You see, the first Adam closed paradise, the second Adam open paradise. What a beautiful contrast there, isn't it, between those two trees. So Genesis chapter 3 ends with the first Adam and his wife being expelled from paradise. Although forgiven and delivered by God's grace grace, through their faith in his promise of a coming Redeemer, yet they would have to live from here on, they would have to live daily with the consequences of their sin. So life for them would become a constant struggle, just as it is for us. Life is a constant struggle. And there would be, for them, just as for us, many sorrows to endure before they would eventually return to the dust of the ground. And both their souls and their bodies would then have to await the promised seed of the woman and his work of crushing Satan's head. Until then, the law of sin and death would operate in humanity. However, the good news is that with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the seed of the woman, the Lamb of God, the coming Redeemer, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and everything else we can call him, the Messiah, Messiah the Christ, a new law would come into effect. The law of the spirit of life, which makes those who have placed their faith in him 
free from the law of sin and death. It says in Romans 8, 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We don't have to be in bondage if we're in Christ to sin. We don't have to be in bondage to sin anymore. And we don't have to worry about the sting of death anymore. Because we are under, if you are a Christian, a true Christian, you are under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that really is the good news. And what a great note to end our study on this year.